Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. And we're back on another College Football Survivor Show. We're recording this on Wednesday, the late National Signing Day, Shahan. But it is not what it once was. And we did a podcast last week where I wanted to change the Heisman Trophy. I would be very much open to other podcasts this offseason with changes we would make in college football. And I miss real National Signing Day. Like I like the first Wednesday in February when it's like, let's go. Like the season's over. And it was the beginning of the next year, right? It was like it was it was a, it was the blooming. Oh, look at these high school kids. Now they pick their college. Like it's gonna be great. And and that day is now in mid-December, where 98% of the best players sign. And so to do this on the first Wednesday in February, you know, there's like, I think South Carolina got a five-star. There was a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I think maybe USC got some guys. I don't know. I miss it. And I would, maybe we could talk about some fixes. We're going to talk about the teams that what they did in recruiting this season might pay off in 2025. Because I think the shorthand of your, your best guys pop in year three, and then you have that whole class before they head off to the NFL. It's a good way to think about it. So we do want to talk about the effects of these recruits. What's it going to be on the playoff race in the next couple of years? But do you miss it, Sean? Do you miss the big Wednesday in February? Or do you not really care that much? No, I, I definitely miss it. I, I think that. One of the big things to me, and I was granted out of the country when the first uh, when the first signing day came around, mm. but it just it feels like it sneaks up on you so much. Like it, you just look up and it's like, hey, signing day is next week, and you're just like, I thought we were talking about the playoff. I thought we were looking forward to bowl games, and all of a sudden, all these coaches who are going to be coaching in bowl games are having to show up at you know these towns of three thousand to talk to some kids like that that kind of feels like it throws the natural order of things out of whack now I was pretty optimistic about the early signing period when it came about because I hoped that it could kind of shut things down a little quicker but kind of the opposites happened it's really sped things up in, in a lot of ways um in, in ways that maybe we didn't understand at the time one thing that I'd point to is uh you know I can't remember exactly when the early signing period was it was like December 14th or so and like in Texas that's the week of the state championship games right so like the the whole thing that like these kids have to be kind of torn away and focus on something else it's it's a weird situation and no, I, I kind of like the order of things. And, and by the way, this doesn't even get into the whole timeline of coaches leaving basically before their team seasons are even over because they have to hurry and get in for recruiting to have an extra week and a half that really won't actually matter all that much before the early signing period. So, no, I think that the early signing period, uh, you know, unfortunately, and again, I, I want to be clear, I, I advocated it for it at the time, but it's been a total failure, I think, and I would love to see them get rid of it. As with almost everything in college sports and especially college football, what seems like a good idea, then you implement it and you implement it basically with very little forethought without thinking about it cohesively or as part of a bigger picture with no guidance really from the NCAA. And then you do it. And it's like, oh, this actually kind of stinks. So, you know, I've made the comparison, I think, on this podcast before. To me, it's kind of like if in a professional sport you had – your draft and your free agency right before your championship, right before your playoffs start. Like between the regular season and the playoffs, let's do the draft and free agency because 
Recruiting is the draft and the transfer portal, which has this window in December, is free agency. And so you're doing that. The issue is that the academic calendar of modern American colleges does not fit with the football calendar and also does not fit with the actual calendar because Christmas screws stuff up. Like the whole – the whole, what we should do – we're not going to stop football. Right, no one's going to stop football. I think maybe we should just eliminate colleges as a whole, and then that would be the best way. <laughs> you just you go to high school, and then I don't you know, just go figure stuff out. I don't know. It's fine because it doesn't. I I would really like to try to figure this out, and we're not going to do it on this podcast, Shahan. But because the second semester starts after Christmas, right after the new year. And because if you want to take part in spring football in March or April, you've got to be a student in January, they've sped all these things up to fit that calendar when it doesn't actually make sense at all with the football season. One of the things – well, now we're going down this path because I want to see what you think. One of the things that I have pondered in trying to figure this out, and it might be what is ever is called cutting off the baby to spite your face. I think you just mixed together a bunch of metaphors and that Cut the it's, baby. there's cutting off your you nose the, to spite your face. You put the baby in the bathtub. Yeah, the, the baby is the King Solomon. Uh, or yeah, uh, there's that one too. Yeah. I thought that you were referring to the King Solomon cut the you baby. Take in that half. Babies, you take the baby's nose in the bathtub. Oh, and the baby and out with the bath water. That, the that's that one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think it might be badly. It might be a wrong thing to think about. But I have thought about the idea, Shahan, of just eliminating early enrolled players and eliminating freshmen coming in early and taking part in spring football because that is actually the accelerator. That's the thing that throws everything off that that you want now. And again, this this was like early two thousands when this started. That this was this was like not typical. This was kind of a thing. You know, I wrote I wrote a recruiting book about Ohio State, and I talked to Dante Whitner, who went on to be a first round draft pick in the NFL and had a long career there. And he was like the first guy to really do it at Ohio State. And he was he remembers like being here as a freshman, and like nobody he couldn't get a ride to practice, and like this didn't happen before. You didn't have early enrolled freshmen, and that was early two thousands. That's the accelerator that you want these high school kids in, so you speed up every part of it, and you feel trapped by the calendar. But if you just said High school players show up in June and then they start practicing in August. You could ease off every other part of this. You could do all the recruiting stuff after the season ended. You wouldn't have to have anybody sign in anything. You could do the portal stuff after the season ended because you also couldn't, you wouldn't have portal guys show up for the spring. It's like your spring are the guys who are in-house on your team. And if you're going to add a portal guy, if you're going to add a freshman that you think might play early, they're going to have to get ready in August. And that's how it is. And maybe that means that portal guys and true freshmen don't play quite as quickly. But I don't know. As long as everybody's dealing with the same parameters, Shahan, is that the end of the world? I don't I don't necessarily think that it was. We have suddenly adapted to where early enrolled freshmen in January was unusual to 75, 80% of schools' classes are now early enrolled guys. Now, if you don't early enroll, now you feel like you're the odd man out. 
What do you think of that idea? Is that a getting rid of something that people like to try to solve a problem? Or is it actually, you know what, why, how come this became the norm? Let's go back to the old way. And then I think everything else lines up. No, I mean, one thing that I'd point to is a, a program that in recruiting we might get to is the University of Alabama. Alabama has 30 kids coming in combined between high school commits and transfers. 24 of them are early enrolled freshmen. 24. And I look again, like you said, it, it might be too late. You, you might just not be able to get any sort of support for doing this. But I don't know. That kind of sucks. Like, Second semester of senior year of high school was a lot of fun. I loved being able to go to prom. I love being able to not have to take the hardest class I've ever taken and enjoy my college admissions and know what the future held and and hang out with my friends. Like it it kind of sucks that you know you take a kid who is 18 years old and tell them, well, you know, to have a chance to be successful in college football, you've got to end high school early. High school is pretty fun and I, you know, obviously that's not the primary reason why we should consider getting rid of early enrollment, but I do think that it puts everybody in such a tough position to, to force them to try to graduate high school early and to set that as a standard if you want to play at one of these major programs. And, and like you said, I don't think it's a bad thing at all for a player to not play a ton as a freshman, even if they're a quarterback, even if they're a receiver, even if they're a defensive lineman. I, I think that, you know, if that was a world that could happen and, and maybe maybe some of this for both of us is just, well, I miss the way things were. But I really do think that we do a a little bit of a disservice to some of these kids when we say to have a chance to set your future up, you have to not enjoy a lot of things about high school. Yeah, I, the idea you said the end of high school is fun. That's not a reason to not have early. Are we sure it's not? That sounds like a great reason to me. This is the let kids have fun act, right? I don't – it's one of those things we get caught and it sometimes is interesting. I was at a, a, a thing the other week and I was having a conversation with a, a woman who is in the podcast world and she had actually been uh, – she had auditioned for a podcast where it was a sports podcast with a sports host but they were looking for someone to talk about sports without – being really like a sports expert, right? And so they asked her to study a subject sort of from a removed perspective and then come in and talk about it in that way. And we get trapped in our sports bubbles because it's a normal sports thing that is not normal life. My daughter went to high school, was the same class. There was a division one football player in her high school class. And after Christmas, he was just gone. And to us, it's like, oh, well, no, it's it's the thing of like, well, he went to early enroll at a at a school that finished in the top 10 of the AP poll this year. He didn't play. He didn't do anything, but he had to leave and go early enroll. And so from a football perspective, like you said, it's totally normal from a high school perspective. He was like the guy that everybody knew and everybody loved. And he just disappeared. It's not normal. It's not normal. He's not on the basketball team. He's not at prom. He's not there for like the photos for the yearbook. It's not normal. Why? 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 Now I'm just being a dad. Why are we in a hurry to grow up? Why are we in a hurry for everything? Because if you made the rule, Sean, once you're allowed to do it and somebody does it, now you have to do it to keep up or you're falling behind. But if you made a rule, because guess what? 
They don't let sophomores in high school start college. But if they did, Nick Saban would go find the best sophomore in the country and be like, you got to get to Bama three years early and start practicing. And Dabo Sweeney and Ryan Day and Lincoln Riley and Steve Sarkeesian and everybody would do the same thing. But it's not allowed. So it's always one of these things. People are like, well, you can't make a rule against that. It's like, well, do they have fourth graders who go to college early? No, they don't because they're not allowed to. So why do we have to accept the fact that you cut your senior year short? And I just think it's one of these things. When they first did it, it didn't create any other problems. It was only a plus. Hey, get them in early. Get them into spring practice. That's great. Now it's created complications because you have a transfer, because transfers are so much more common and because you're trying to move this signing day around. I think it's, I think it's a possible solution, Shahan. And the thing is, coaches wouldn't like it theoretically, but the trade off that they would get in terms of normalizing life in December, being able to focus on the playoff and, and what's and on the field stuff in December and not having to do all this other stuff, not trying to have to manage your roster at weird times of the year and setting up a real schedule, maybe it's a trade-off they'd be willing to accept, right? Would they could you could you see coaches? I think if you if I brought it up, you bring it up to a coach, their initial reaction would be like, no way, what are you talking about? But I'm not sure maybe you could talk them into it. One thing that I'm very curious about, and this is a bigger picture thing, is you know, we kind of I think are starting to have this divide between you know, maybe the older generation of coaches, more of the sort of baby boomer generation. And then you kind of have this other side of the millennials coming up, the the younger Gen X coaches. And it does seem like there is a focus on being more complete people than what some of these coaches were in the past, right? Nick Saban is a grinder. Every moment of every day, he is grinding. You know, I've heard stories about Bill Snyder at Kansas State, and like you basically were never allowed to leave that facility, right? That's just how being a coach under Bill Snyder worked. We don't hear those same sort of stories about Dabo Swinney. Now, Dabo's, again, like around 50. He's, a, you know, he's not a millennial by any means, but, you know, it does seem like there is an approach. Sonny Dykes would be a great example of this. Again, another coach is over 50, but I think kind of has that mindset. Um, there, I think there is a push coming towards, hey, maybe it's not the best thing if I'm burning my staff out 24-7, 365. Maybe it is a good thing if, uh, if you know, our coaches can go to their daughter's dance recital. Maybe it is a good thing if, you know, there, there's some semblance of work-life balance. I, I think that's coming, and that's something you know, when we talk about the calendar, and I'm sure we can have a whole episode over the offseason about re- remaking the calendar. I think that we might have even touched on it last year. Um, but, you know, that's one part of it is that I do think that, uh, you know, the reality is every program, every coach is trying to gain an advantage. And I do think that there is something to the idea that, you know, the these coaches and these programs will go exactly as far as you let them. and if there's a way to not let them, you know, I, I think that while, like you said, there might be some short-term pushback and maybe it would just be impossible to actually get the support to pass something like this. Because like, you know, it's the other part of this too, is like, why doesn't a kid enroll after his sophomore year? It's because he has to academically graduate, right? That's the thing that limits them from being able to make it all the way through. And also obviously like, you know, Nick Saban doesn't want to waste a kid's 17 and 18 year old season when he's not ready, right? Like, obviously, that's different than giving him a semester to prep. But, you know, I, I think that in this hypothetical perfect world where we're able to, to kind of 
define the rules from above, I do think that trying to slow down this calendar with limiting early enrollees, I, I think potentially could be a good thing. Because there are there are classes you have to take to get in, right? For college, like there are benchmarks. What if they just said you have to have eight semesters of high school? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it would be interesting. It's not just about counting your classes. Did you take this math class, this English class? You've got to be in high school for eight semesters. Like that's, like that idea, why is that crazy? You mean, oh, the normal length? Be in high school the normal length and then you can come. You just can't come early. So anyway, I think uh, I think it's something to talk about. I do think you make a good point about a greater concern about the mental health and well-being of everybody. But especially college football, I do think has to think a little bit more about saving it from itself. And again, if you had like an actual governing body, maybe you could think about things like this. But rules are put in place not to just protect you from other people, but sometimes they're put in place to protect you from yourself because we all need rules. Why do people, why does Weight Watchers exist? It's not because Weight Watchers has an actual secret plan of healthy eating. It's because once a week, you got to show up and get on the scale. So someone, it's, it's someone make it, making you do something, right? You could just do it on your own. My wife was like a reading tutor. She's like, oh, everyone has like this secret, secret plan to help kids read. You know what helps kids read? Reading. So like you go to the reading tutor and it's like, well, maybe you could read at home and that would help your kid read better. But I'm going to pay the money to go to a building to read there because we have a three o'clock appointment. And if it's just three o'clock on the couch at home, you might watch TV. A lot of things, we do it in life all the time. We pay money to have people make us do things that are good for us. Make college football do things that are good for college football. But who's going to do it? But you got to save the coaches. And actually, the coaches are fine. They're millionaires. Let's save some of these 18-year-olds. Let's not make the norm this this idea of like you've got to speed up your life. Hurry up and get to your life. You're, what are you, you're 18-year-old? You're wasting a – what a wasted February. Shahan, you lazy. Oh, you're just – oh, I'm a senior in high school. I'm taking driver's ed and and gym and 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 finally asking out that person who I've been eyeing my whole high school – oh, Man, what a waste a that was. Since you've been in high school, driver's ed, second semester, senior year. and Do you, do you think that these kids have to take gym when they're D1 football recruits? They're, they don't have to take gym, man. They don't want to take gym. You know what I learned in driver's ed? Wet leaves are like ice. Be careful mm. out there. Wet leaves will get you. Speaking of which, I uh, it did it did end up extremely snowing and icing, and the roads are totally unmanageable. I'll tell you what, Texas is not prepared for this. We we had to go to the store. What? Texas not prepared? I know. Hey, we still have power, so you know what? Like, uh, shout out to Greg Abbott. You did better than last time, but uh, but uh, I we had to go to the store because we just like needed one or two things, and it's like, jeez. Oh, and we went out on the roads. The, the whole thing is just like completely slick no effort whatsoever to to salt the roads or to to clear the snow nothing so it was it you, i was absolutely just like out there in the tundra it was it was crazy yeah, well we spend a lot of time talking on this podcast about what's wrong with texas football maybe look <laughs> at your state are we really wondering anymore this this puts into perspective how amazing TCU's season was because <laughs> TCU did it in the state of Texas where they don't ice the roads. <laughs> I, I actually think that uh, 
look, we, we don't have to get too far. There is a little bit of that where it's like the way that we can be great is by giving each other as much ability to do whatever we want as possible. But then like the thing is, then when people do stupid things, we're like, well, how could we have predicted that? How how could we have known? We didn't have any rules or guardrails, but we let you do whatever you wanted and you did something stupid and you, you know, you you played a quarterback who sucked. You, you recruited Tyrone Swoops like, you know, it's it's I don't know. It's <laughs> what a side like, swipe so, that was. I know. I know. He, I, from what I've heard, a very, very nice man. And and uh, I think he had a, a little bit of a career at tight end in the end. NFL, but uh, you know, was not a quarterback for the University of Texas. He really needed to be playing. I think JT Barrett tells a story about Texas picking Tyrone Swoops over him. I think JT Barrett like went to camp, went to camp <laughs> at Texas, thought he was about to get an offer, didn't get the offer, and went home and was like, oh, and then Ohio State came in and then they offered and, the other and guy. He's a he's a Wichita Falls kid, right? Wichita Falls writer, I think it was. So, so like th- there's so many of these stories. I I like there really should have been some guardrails in place. Hey, hey, Mac, you might want to recruit this Robert Griffin, the third kid as a quarterback. Hey, hey, Mac, uh, this Johnny Manziel kid is not a safety. Just a heads up. He's going to be a pretty good quarterback. I, I So so I did this Ohio State recruiting book that is a series. There's been a Michigan book. There's been a Georgia book. There's been an Alabama book. And it's all just like individual stories. Talk to a great player in the school's history. And it's about his recruitment to get to the school. It's not about his career. It's like how he got there. I do think recruiting fails is even better. And it could just be like nationally or it could be like your rivals recruiting failures. But like all the misses. (laughs) And if you say like uh, I've thought about I just think people tell good recruiting stories. But and I think. Most coaches, especially if it was while they were an assistant, if you said, give me your biggest recruiting failure, I think the (laughs) stories are great because I do think there are going to be guys who are like, well, one time, you know, I was recruiting Will Anderson and I thought he was a D3 player. And it's like just the ridiculous things because we all make mistakes. Will Anderson is a fullback in my mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I came back because everybody loves that. Like when a baseball player gets like to the Hall of Fame and you have like the scouts, like evaluation of the guy. And it's like, yeah, yeah. you know, minor league arm for Roberto Clemente or whatever. It's like, <laughs> what? Like all that. People love failure, which is why they listen to this podcast. Yep. I, I will say, I will say real quick, uh, I am finally getting around to reading Meat Market by Bruce Feldman. Already just fascinating, fascinating stuff. And uh, obviously following Cocho's Ole Miss is like the wildest place. I didn't realize that Hugh Freeze was like that integrated into that Ole Miss staff, that he was like a central player over there in the recruiting world. So it, it's very interesting. It came out like 15, probably almost 20 years ago, but it's uh, it's definitely a, quite a read. Cocho's a little disappointed. Took this long John <laughs> to read a book about me and Margaret and Bruce did on me and uh, show me how Cocho goes about the business of recruiting. So I, I have also not read it yet, but uh, it's it's good. It's good. You should you should check it out. I like meat and I like markets. All right, we come back. We're going to talk about this recruiting class, what it might mean in three years, and also we'll look back at the recruiting class from three years ago and what it meant for this year. We'll do it next on the College Football Survivor Show. Don't miss the College Football Survivor Show bonus episode this week. Available only on Apple Podcasts. This is a team that could absolutely be in the playoff in the next 
three years with Dante Moore at quarterback. This guy is really good, but it's a big <laughs> loss for Midwestern schools that they weren't able to lock this guy down, right? That he's not going to Michigan or Michigan State or Ohio State. It's like you have a Detroit quarterback and he winds up picking Oregon and then flipping to UCLA. It's like, come on, Big Ten, Midwest. You got to lock guys like that down. The Midwest isn't the biggest producer, of course, of quarterback talent. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you're not usually getting elite elite guys. But at the same time, are, are we going to be in a situation where guys are just like, well, you know, I want to play in the Big Ten, but I like the beach. And so kids who would have ever considered going to Michigan or going to Wisconsin are like, or I could go play close to home and live at the beach. To be fair, there are Midwestern Big Ten schools that have beaches. They're just on. Oh, yeah. Northwestern, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, you get. (laughs) So it is a little different calculus. But yeah. (laughs) Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for exclusive College Survivor Show bonus episodes. So the idea here, Shahan, is that we want to look at the best classes from this year. Again, there was not a lot of not a ton of movement, right? This is most of the haze in the barn in December. But one of the things I do want to talk about is just this is not news to anybody, just how we look at recruiting now because of the transfer portal. It really has changed how you build rosters. And I almost speaking of failure, I almost missed the days when if you missed at a specific position in like two consecutive recruiting cycles, you ran the risk of getting to the point where you were not putting competent players on the field at a position for like an entire season. And there was nothing you could do about it. Like you had to pay the piper. It was, you know what? Like our defensive line coach, like fell asleep and just was buying hamburgers every recruiting trip and like didn't go to the high schools to actually recruit the guys. And we have no tackles. We have no tackles. He's fired, but we have no tackles now. But and now if you're a good program, you're like, we'll just we'll just take somebody else's good tackle. So there was a time when if this was it, man, you had to pay the piper. So I want to talk about that a little bit, but let's get some specifics first. In the class of 2020, I'm going to run down the top. 10 or 11 recruiting classes that year, according to the 247 Sports Composite Rating. And again, so your class of 2020, the freshmen in 2020, their second-year players in 2021, their third-year players in 2022, and they're people like C.J. Stroud and Bryce Young and Jalen Carter, right? This is like, these are great players who are making an impact on the national scene. Number one class in number in 2020, Georgia. And it's like, oh, what an off-the-radar. Where did Georgia come from? It's like, what are you talking about? They had the best recruiting class. So Georgia was number one in 2020. Bama was two. Clemson was three. LSU was four. Ohio State was five. Texas A&M was six. Auburn was seven. Texas was eight. Florida was nine. Michigan was 10. And Tennessee was 11. So the four teams that made the playoff this year, it was the number one recruiting class for Georgia, the number five class for Ohio State, the number 10 class for Michigan, and the number 23 class for TCU, which frankly is pretty good. No, that's a solid class from, from TCU, for sure. It was the third best class in the Big 12 that year. That is that is pretty good. So there's some confirmation here, Shahan, of like, guess what? Georgia finally got it together. This is real. I think there's some stuff here with Tennessee that like Tennessee has been bubbling and just needed somebody. Josh Heupel as a coach, Hendon Hooker. As a quarterback, Alex Golish, as an offensive coordinator, they needed people to sort of pull together the stuff they had. But it's not like Tennessee came from completely off the radar. But I'm almost more interested, Jahan, in the teams 
that are high in a ranking like that and then were bad. Texas A&M was the sixth recruiting class in 2020, went five and seven. Auburn was seventh, went five and seven this year. Texas was eighth, went eight and five this year. Florida was ninth, went six and seven this year. When you see those, especially like it's all these Southern teams, these SEC teams, when you see schools like Texas A&M, Auburn, Florida, all top 10 recruiting classes three years ago, all losing records in what is the third year of that class. Do you just say like, well, yeah, like that's what happens at programs like that. Are you surprised like that? Does it tell you something or does it not tell you anything? I think it tells you that those coaches aren't long for these jobs and the the coaches who landed these classes, two of the three are gone. And the other, if he didn't have a contract that owed him $86 million, also would have been gone, right? I, I think that, yep. yes, Jimbo, of course, being that coach. Uh, I think that this, uh, and by the way, also, while while LSU did win 10 games this year, they went on to go, I think it was 11 and 11 over the next two seasons in 20 and 21, leading to Ed Orgeron being fired. Uh, and they had the number four class coming off of the national championship. So, no, I mean, I think that, I think that here's the thing, right? When you have a top 10 caliber class, when you have a top five caliber class, it gives you the tools. It gives you the tools to be successful. No question about it. But it also raises the bar. It sets an expectation that you need to, to succeed a certain amount or this is not good enough, right? That's that's one of the reasons why people, you know, talked so much about the A&M thing last season. Obviously, it was a freshman class, but they had the number one recruiting class in the history of college football. You can't have classes like this and flop or you're not going to be in your job for very long. This is – I feel like it's the schools like that that give recruiting a bad name because I'm always very interested. And I've talked about this with people, and I think someone did it – I've I talked about it for years and years and years. I never did anything, and then someone did something with it, I think. The conversion rate on five stars, that we love to talk about the two-star off-the-radar guy. J.J. Watt was a half-star recruit who was a Mac tight end who became – you know, a defensive end and the NFL defensive player of the year. We love those stories. We don't talk enough about Bryce Young's a five-star. He goes to Alabama. He wins the Heisman. He's going to be probably the number one pick in the NFL draft. And it's five-star in, five-star out. Like that's the true version of success. There's a lot of luck. There's a lot of pixie dust. There's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that goes into turning a two-star into a first-round draft pick. There's also a lot of miscalculations and failures and lack of discipline and bad coaching and bad luck that goes into turning a five-star recruit into a guy who never plays in the NFL, for instance. And I think we talk a lot about both of those because the non-recruiting, the people who are like anti-recruiting, Love both those versions. Oh, the five-star. He was a five-star and he wasn't very good. And this guy was a two-star and he's an All-American. But really what happens a lot for the best teams is five-star in, five-star out. And so we can get hung up on what LSU and Texas A&M and Auburn and Texas and Florida don't do. But what Georgia has done the last two seasons they were building, and the whole issue with Kirby Smart when he got there was Mark Rick just like was fine, but wasn't recruiting like quite like this. And Kirby Smart went in and got after it. And then guess what? They coached him up, they developed them, they schemed it up, and this is no surprise. And so I'm on the lookout for the next programs who can be like that, which we'll get to in a second, Shahan. But I 
I like talking about recruiting. I mostly like like it from a roster building strategy standpoint. But like the battles for individual players, if you're Georgia, if you're Alabama, if you're Ohio State, Clemson more often than not. Listen, Michigan was in the top 10 three years ago and then turned into a playoff team. That's how it's supposed to go. So on signing day, it really matters for programs like that because they're going to do something with the players that they get. And sometimes we revel too much in the programs that don't do much with the great high school players they get. No, I mean, look back at that 2020 class. Georgia, top four players. Keely Ringo, Broderick Jones, who started at 12 games for left tackle. Uh, Jalen Carter, who's going to be a top four pick in the draft. And Darnell Washington, who's going to be a drafted player, right? All four of those guys hit. For Alabama, Bryce Young, number two player in the country, probably the number one pick in the draft. Will Anderson, number 17 player in the country, going to be a top four pick in the draft. Chris Braswell, good player, major rotation player. And Drew Sanders uh, was a five-star who transferred to Arkansas and now is going to be a first or second round pick. So like the the conversion rate, like you mentioned, is huge. It, it's massive. That's such a big part of why Alabama and Georgia are successful. And by the way, also a big part of the reason why those programs continue to land five stars and high four stars because they have a pathway. Obviously, I'd throw Ohio State into this as well. Obviously, I'd you know there's other programs that I'd consider, but but yeah, I mean, I think that that's such a huge part of the equation is who can who can you know set those expectations for what they're bringing in and what they're putting out. Right? That was that was the big criticism. That's been the big criticism of Texas for a long time. Right? Is that Texas had back to back number three recruiting classes in eighteen and nineteen and still has not had a first round offensive draft pick since I believe it was twenty twelve. Right? So so like. The programs that can bring guys in and put them out even better than they can find them are the ones that are going to uh, continually compete for national championships. So then the idea is – and listen, this is why these are like jobs that people want. It's like why Brian Kelly wants to go from Notre Dame to LSU because it's like, okay, they're getting the talent. I think I'll develop it and convert it. It's why Billy Napier wants the Florida job. I'll go in and do that. It's why Hugh Freeze wants the Auburn job. I'll go in and do that. It's why Texas A&M paid all that money for Jimbo because it's like, listen, Jimbo will get after it recruiting, and he had won at Florida State. You think he'll be a converter. I think one of – I mean, like of all the things, right, being a converter, taking talent and not wasting it, what better skill can any coach have? I mean, because, again, we might say, well, the best thing a coach can do is take a guy who's not that talented and coach him up. No! The best thing a coach can do is take a guy who's supremely talented and get him to play like someone who is supremely talented. So I, I'm, I'm always intrigued by this because I do like this idea of recruiting. So we wanted to get that out of the way. Let's come back to the present day. Right after the break, we'll talk about the teams with this recruiting class. Here's who they got. Who do we think the programs are going to be that are going to be developers and converters? And who are the programs that might turn a top 10 recruiting class into a losing record three years from now? Next on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. All right, Shahan. So I do think we had talked about the idea of, hey... Maybe let's think about who the playoff teams are going to be in 2025. So I think we want to get there at the end of this discussion, thinking about this recruiting class in the players, their third season, what will that look like? But let's just run through the top classes 
and talk about whether we think three years from now, this will be a program that has developed and converted the talent that it just brought in. So the number one class this year, Bama. Kind of maybe along the way, Bama always closes great, right? Sometimes with Bama, you're like, I don't know, I don't know. And then it's like, oh, did they get like four or five stars on signing day in December? It's like, yeah, they did. Like that's what Bama does. Is there any reason to believe, Shahan, that by the 2025 season, Bama will not be developing and converting at the same level? And we say this at a moment where, as we speak on Wednesday afternoon, we still don't know who's Bama, who Bama's offensive and defensive coordinators are going to be. Does that matter, or is this only a Saban conversation? And if it's only a Saban conversation, do we ever think he's going to come down off his peak? Yeah, I mean, I think that the biggest threat probably facing Alabama right now is that Nick Saban could just like decide to run for president in 2024 and win. Mm. Uh, would Nick Saban, <laughs> I mean, he definitely would win the state of Alabama, but would he win like Mississippi and Louisiana and Georgia or would they not vote for him? The alternative is that he would still be coaching Alabama. So yes, absolutely. Oh. They'd kick him all the way out of being in college football. But also, wouldn't they no, be but, doing they'd be doing SEC chants at his presidential rallies, right? <laughs> they absolutely would. Oklahoma fans would be doing SEC chants, even though they're not even yeah. there as yet. Tulane <laughs> would be doing SEC chants. It would be it would be crazy. Now wow. that that's the question. When when do we get the uh <laughs> <laughs> we we got to get Nick Saban running against, uh, you know, John Kasich or somebody like that uh, and, and just, you know, get get the full SEC versus Big Ten going on in the next presidential election. That is very interesting. If the SEC is adding 47 electoral votes with Texas and Oklahoma, I think this is a hidden <laughs> this is a hidden reality of SEC expansion. No wonder the Big Ten decided to go into California. That ex- that totally explains it. They want those electoral votes. Wow. The Jim Harbaugh versus <laughs> Nick Saban presidential race in 2024 is going to be off the charts. I will say I went moderately far down the line of a – Jim Harbaugh, Donald Trump comparison at some point in 2016. And one of the big (laughs) things was that they both wore caps with suits. So, (laughs) and it's just like, kind of comes from off the radar, kind of has like a way about him that like some people like, and some people find out. And like, I could, I could make you a chart, but I'm going to, while you talk next, I'm going to count up electoral votes for big 10 states versus electoral votes for sec states <laughs> while we do it um but in the meantime do you think saban by 2025 will continue to develop and convert talent all right in seriousness yes i absolutely think so i think they've got a plan in place i think they've got a system and a structure in place uh and look i mean you know last year obviously alabama gets knocked off their perch on the field they get knocked off their perch uh from a recruiting perspective and I think that uh, that this is kind of a, a strike back for Alabama, this recruiting class. They have nine five-stars coming in. They have two of the top ten players in the country, an offensive tackle, Caden Proctor, and safety, Caleb Downs. I, I don't think that we've seen Alabama be quite as strong 
on the interior in recent years. And a guy that I'd point to is James Smith, a, a freshman from Montgomery, Alabama, who's 6'3", 310. That is a traditional Nick Saban body type. That is somebody who is going to clog up lanes. Uh, Edric Hill, another kid from Missouri, 6'3", 290. I think they're going to try to get bigger and kind of get back to the business that they're used to doing. And honestly, the only thing that kind of holds this recruiting class down, relatively speaking, is that they're also bringing in two transfers. A linebacker from Georgia, Tresman uh, Marshall, and a new tight end from Maryland, C.J. Dupree. So I really like this class that they brought in. Uh, Again, things are going to look different without Bryce Young, but they have as good of a conversion rate as there is in college football. And there's no – like who's going to be the person to be like, I think this is the year Saban starts to dip? Who's going to be that person? Right. Like we're, we're, we're speaking me. on the day that, that Tom Brady retired. Right. So like right. you could have spent the last decade being like, ah, this is the year Brady loses. This is the year Brady loses. This is the year. I just I think you're going to ride with Saban. And I do. I think Saban, whatever he does, I do think Saban will go out on top. And I don't know that that means a national championship, but I don't think you're going to see the end of Nick Saban like you saw with a lot of other coaches where like there is like a two or three year dip and it gets into that very difficult thing with the board of trustees and the president of the university and like oh man do we try to have to do we have to force this guy out he made us who we are we owe him so much everybody loves him but my gosh we stink right now i don't think he's wired that way and i think it's either one of two things one is he'll never lose it or two the moment he starts to he'll be the one that realizes it and says, I'm done. I don't think Nick Saban wants to live in a world where he's putting up back-to-back six and six seasons. No, not at all. And so, no, I've no reason to think that it's coming anytime soon. Uh, And and I think that, look for the the quote-unquote struggles that Alabama's had over the last two years. And seriously, these are probably the two worst back-to-back teams that Nick Saban has had during his tenure, which is more of a statement about the teams that he's had during his tenure. Uh, I, I think that Alabama is still in great shape, and I, I think that they're going to do some soul searching this offseason. Obviously, we're going to have to wait and see it, and, and probably have a whole podcast whenever they finally name their coordinators. But uh, but I think that they're going to come back looking a little different, but just as dominant. Back at a napkin, math. I think it is much smarter for a Big Ten coach to run for president than an SEC coach. Two hundred and eighteen electoral votes when you add in California. For the Big Ten, 150 for the SEC. Now, the thing is, Saban did coach for the Browns, was the head coach at Michigan State. If he came back and worked it in Michigan and Ohio, he might be able to get some support there. Now, here's here's the important question, though. Did you take into account New York's college football team? I think I did count. I think I, oh, I think I did count New York by accident. I was like, oh yeah, Rutgers is in New York. (laughs) They're not in New York. You've been listening to that Big Ten propaganda, brother. Oh my God, Jim Delaney got me. Jim Delaney was like, we're going to have a Big Ten president. We're going to have a Big Ten president. That's the goal of this. That's the end game. People think it's about cable subscriptions. The goal is a Big Ten president. Jim Delaney, he is, he's like a power broker. This is like all this is like uh, back in the old cigar smoke filled rooms. Jim Delaney's puppets okay sorry be honest be honest are are you trying to set up your run for big 10 commissioner is this is this what this podcast is i think i'd be fine i don't think i'd 
I mean, Jim Delaney was pretty good. The The hard thing is, is I don't know anything about business. And that feels like a thing that mm. you need to know now as a conference commissioner, right? I can't believe that a journalist doesn't uh, <laughs> doesn't know the ins and outs of how to use business. Uh, it, it is remarkable. Journalism, man. There was a, a a new coach. Ohio State just hired a new a new coach who had been a staffer and is now going to be a full-time assistant for Ohio State at age 27. He was like, yeah, I went to college for journalism. And then I decided to be a coach. And whenever – Whenever someone talks about like, well, I thought I was going to be a journalist, the the conversation immediately turns to, boy, were you smart to get out. So I don't know what that says about our business. Nobody ever says like, oh, I can't believe you gave up journalism for the other th- – Georgia. Georgia is – we've talked about this. Georgia the number two class this year. I don't know. Is Georgia going to be trying for a five-peat by 2025? I'm, I don't think I'm joking when I say that, right? What – what is going to stop Georgia from being Georgia? All that's going to stop Georgia is Ohio State makes the field goal. You know, Bryce Young beats them not just in the conference championship game, but in the playoff. Somebody's going to have to beat them. And I, maybe Lincoln Riley can beat them. Maybe Steve Sarkeesian with Arch Manning can beat them. Maybe Tennessee can beat them. But I don't think they're going anywhere because I think I'm not sure there's a better converter right now than what Kirby Smart. I do have one thing I want to ask you about, Georgia, but we're not assuming Georgia's what Georgia is is going to change, right? No, no. I mean, I think that the funny thing about Georgia is from 2017 to 2020, they did everything right. They they put all the pieces in place. They, uh, I think, handled things schematically pretty well. And I think that uh, that they've proven that they know how to sort of be that kind of factory. I mean, that, that's kind of how you have to think of them is a football factory, especially on the defensive side of the ball. And uh, no, no reason to believe that that's going to change anytime soon. I really grew to respect Todd Monken and what he means to Georgia. Yes. Having covered that semifinal, he is interviewed to be the offensive coordinator of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I don't know if it's I don't if Tom is not there. I don't know. Do you still want to do it? But they're paying him as the highest paid assistant in college football. You know, he was very upfront talking before that semifinal about like, listen, man, we're not a family. We're a business. If I stink, you're going to fire me. You know, I'll be here as long, you know, like he's going to go where the money is, where the winning is, where the where the the best chance to enjoy his life is. And that very well may be Georgia because, you know, it's fun winning. You know, it's really fun getting paid and winning. But how big of a deal do you think it would be if Todd Monken leaves Georgia? I think it would be a pretty big deal. I mean, remember, you know, this is not to to question what Georgia is, but for years they were the team that was kind of hapless on offense, but they were so good defensively that it didn't matter, right? They were very much a a game management offense and uh, and kind of relied on talent to get by. Todd Monken was the first coordinator that Kirby Smarts had, and really Georgia's had in a very long time, that made teams pay. Uh, You know, one of the things that I think stands out the most in that national championship game is that it wasn't just that TCU got out-talented. They got coached to hell by Todd Monken and by Kirby Smart, right? Like, and I, that's not something that's guaranteed. That's what set Alabama apart for so many years is that, yes, we have better players than you, but we also have a game plan that's going to completely kick your butt. And I think we saw that in a big way, uh, in the national championship game. And, and I think Todd Monk is a huge part of that. So look, do I, do I think that they'd fall apart without him? No, no. I mean, they'd find somebody else who's good, but at the same time, I don't think that George is going to be looking at a five peat in 2025, but I think that it definitely 
impacts their ability to be as consistently dominant as they are if Todd Monken is not the head coach there. The offensive coordinator. Yeah, I do. Yes. I do think uh, yes, uh, yes, the offensive coordinator I, like that is that is tough. So they would hire somebody good. I just think he's really good. So that is one to keep an eye on. That is one to keep an eye on that. We're kind of at this stage where it feels like stuff has settled down. But the only thing that's left to happen for college coaching ranks is the NFL taking guys. So you start a domino effect of like, well, you know, Bama's already looking for an offensive coordinator. If Georgia is also looking for an offensive coordinator, like all bets are off. Who knows what that situation is going to look like so keep keep your eye on that i know people are number three in this recruiting class is texas and this is we have to have an actual texas conversation i thought we did a good podcast we have an apple podcast bonus episode every week where if you subscribe for 2.99 a month on apple podcast you get that bonus episode we talked about the best quarterbacks in the 2023 recruiting class and what impact they might make and we of course spent some time with arch manning and on that podcast you talked about arch manning picks texas dudes want to go play with arch manning can they convert enough around arch manning that by 2025 when is texas (sighs) now we're just back to it now i'm just asking you when texas is going to be good i was trying to build it up and like oh something's changed this is new and different it's like is it when is texas going to be good again is this it is this the moment quinn ewers then arch manning is this it so let me turn back the clock for a second for you. Back to 2018. Oh, I like when you tell it's Texas story time. Hey, Uncle Shahan, <laughs> tell us a story about the Longhorns. So in 2018, uh, they had this third, actually it was a second year coach. It didn't even take him this long to, to get a top five class. Uh, so, some guy named Tom, I don't, I don't really remember. Um, mm, he mm, brought in yeah. the number three recruiting class in the country, including group that was on the short list of maybe the best defensive backfields I've ever seen. Like they got two five-star safeties in Caden Stearns and BJ Foster, another top 50 in Jalen Green, another top 50 in, in DeMarvian Overshone. And Caden Stearns as a freshman was unbelievable and then got no better. BJ Foster was like pretty interesting and hit really hard and never got any better. And Jalen Green never really played. DeMarvin Overshone got moved to linebacker and turned out all right. Brennan Eagles left for the NFL too early. Anthony Cook was fine this year. So none of those guys really converted at all. And then, but don't worry, don't worry. The next year, they also signed a top three class. Brew McCoy didn't even last the offseason, now at Tennessee. Jordan Whittington, it's kind of been injuries, not really his fault. Jake Smith ended up transferring twice. Now he's at Arizona State. Tyler Johnson, non-factor to Gabriel Floyd, non-factor Tyler Owens at Texas Tech now. Like you go through the top of both of these classes and this is, I mean, seriously, I know that we harp on it, but this is one of the worst conversion rates that we have in college football. Why? It's a different Why? What is it? I don't know. It's, it's lasted across multiple staffs. This is not a Tom Herman issue. This was not a Charlie Strong issue. This is not a Steve Sarkeesian issue. This is something that's lasted across multiple classes. Now, one thing I will mention in 2020, you talk about those third-year players. B. John Robinson was the number one running back in the country coming out, and he was the number one running back in the country this year as a junior. That hit. That absolutely hit. Hudson Card, transferred to Purdue. Alfred Collins, looked really good as a freshman, never got any better. Jaquindon Jackson, he was like a second quarterback, so we ended up transferring to Utah. Vernon Broughton, hasn't contributed. Prince Dorba, hasn't contributed. Saving Alford, transferred. Like, it... It doesn't matter who the coaching staff is. I don't know what it is. It's I don't know if it's something in the way that they set things up. I don't know if it's something in the in the 
you know, the culture of the program or something. I, I have no idea what it is. I will say 2021, Jatavian Sanders and Xavier Worthy have both hit. Those are their top two players in that 2021 class. So maybe things will get a little better. Calvin Banks absolutely hit last year, was one of the best offensive linemen in the country as a freshman. But like, they don't deserve benefit of the doubt. They just don't. And it's it's frustrating. If you could bet on the 2025 national championship right now, would yeah. you put some money on Texas or would you feel like you're throwing that money away and you're not going to believe it until they actually do it? No, I one, I feel like I'd be throwing that money away too. They're going to be in the SEC and my betting that they're going to get past Alabama and Georgia, even in a 12 team playoff world. Like I, if, if we're betting on them to make the playoff, I'd consider it, but there's no way that even at awesome odds, I'd put money on Texas to compete for a national championship. Okay. Similar conversation. Oklahoma's fourth. That, I mean, I tell you what, for Brent Venables to lock down the number four recruiting class in the country after an unsuccessful year one, I mean, it's, yeah, it's you, you know, you can explain it away, but it wasn't a great year on the field. No. Does this tell us something? Does this tell us that the future of Oklahoma is very strong because even when it didn't go right on the field, it went very well in recruiting, and guess what? Lots of coaches have rough first seasons, and Brent Venables is going to get it together. So uh, two things. First of all, I think we have to look at uh, number three and number four being Texas and Oklahoma. This is a big part of why they're going to the SEC. Mm. You do get a bump being in the SEC and getting to sell that you get to play in the SEC against whatever teams. For Texas, again, I, I think that there's going to be some question about whether it actually means anything. For Oklahoma, I think it absolutely does. Oklahoma is a program that has recruited really well, but has never been in that top five range, even when things were rolling under Lincoln Riley. You know, 2019, they had the number four class in the country, but that was kind of an outlier class. Uh, that was really, really also, by the way, like quarterback and wide receiver driven. They they didn't have the sort of positional depth like you see with this class. With, with this class, Jackson Arnold is the number eight player in the country at quarterback, number four quarterback in the nation, and a really awesome quarterback year. Uh, they've got an edge who's the number 11 player in the country they got two safeties who are both top 75 like this is a pretty balanced class which i think bodes well for what oklahoma can choose to do uh, again i think that this does raise their recruiting ceiling uh just being in the sec and having an opportunity to compete for more talent the, the pitch i think for oklahoma to join the sec was it is going to be much harder to make the playoff and it's going to be much harder to win your conference but there probably is a little bit of a higher ceiling if you're Oklahoma to be in the SEC and be able to have access to the kind of talent that they have. So from a recruiting perspective, I think that this is exactly what they needed to see. They also have, by the way, a top 10 transfer class coming in. So they're going to try to balance the the short-term and long-term development type stuff. So in terms of the off-the-field stuff, I think that Brent Venable's done a lot of things right. And it, it's telling that people like Jackson Arnold and like Peyton Bowen, five-star players, still believe in this program. Obviously, they're going to have to survive next year to really be able to convert on this. But but I do think that this tells me that regardless of what happened this year, people don't see the Oklahoma brand as going away. The blueprint's there. And the blueprint is Georgia West. 
do what Kirby Smart did at Georgia, be a defense first coach who creates a such an environment where great defensive players want to come there and be developed and ball out and then just find a way on offense. And by the way, getting one of the top five quarterbacks in the country on offense is awesome. That's a great place to start. But when you start listing those highly ranked defensive players, it makes me think if Kirby Smart could do it at Georgia, you know, there's not quite the same level of talent in the state of Oklahoma and right around it, but go down and get guys in Texas and that kind of thing. I, I don't know why Brent Venables can't do it at Oklahoma, right? No question. No question. And and I think the other part of this is, and granted it was under Bob Stoops and Lincoln Riley, you know, you obviously don't want to project too far uh, with, with stuff that this coaching staff hasn't done, but Oklahoma is an incredible converter of talents. They, they tend to do an awesome job of maximizing who they have on campus. Now, it's a different world when you've got top three to four recruiting classes and have to convert those kids. But they've recruit, they've uh, they've turned top ten classes into numerous NFL players. I think that they're among the leading teams of of NFL players produced to play in the Super Bowl this upcoming year. Right, obviously Jalen Hurts uh, being kind of chief among them. So they've done a great job historically. I think that they've got a, a, an awesome strength and conditioning program that helps. And, uh, you know, now the question is, can Brett Venables win? Because that's ultimately all that's actually going to matter. But I I think that if you're Oklahoma, you have to feel really good about this class. So number five is Ohio State. And Ohio State's in an interesting situation. A smaller class for them, only 20 commits. They did add five guys in the transfer portal because they – they want to bring out, right? That's what I like. You want to bring in about 25 new guys. So if you only get 20, they missed on some guys late in the process for Ohio State. The one thing about Ohio State here, they have been very good at converting. They're a little top heavy or they're offense heavy. That Their big time recruiting classes are just driven by highly rated receivers in this class, especially. They have um, Brandon Innes, Noah Rogers, and Carnell Tate are three receivers who are all among the top 60 players in the country. They're three of their top four recruits. That's kind of where they've been, and that is also showing up, right? It's They are an offense-first team, and they're having some defensive issues, and they haven't quite gotten back to the level of defensive talent that they had when they were, in 2019, putting Chase Young and Jeff Okuda and guys like that on the field. All Again, that's five-star conversion. Class of 2017, Chase Young, Jeff Okuda, that's two five-star guys. They go to Ohio State. They play for three years. They make the playoff as juniors, and they go off and be the number two and number three picks in the NFL draft. That's conversion. They're not quite doing that defensively, and I thought it was interesting when you mentioned the balance. I think that really matters in this, too. I don't know if there would be a way within recruiting rankings to talk about balance, but Ohio State's been propped up a lot. Now, they kind of didn't get a big-time quarterback in this class. They got Lincoln Keenholz from... South Dakota, who's ranked in the 200s, but they've got the big-time receivers. Brian Hartline keeps doing that work. And at at some point, like having eight five-stars in one room, right, on your roster, it's like, hey, we have, we have 11 five-stars on our team, but eight of them are in the receiver room, right? That's not the most conducive thing to being a winning program. Ohio State is a winning program, but they do have to get – some of the defensive recruiting back rolling again. They had a cornerback flip late in December to Auburn. They were in on three big-time defensive ends. I think they thought they were going to go at least one for three, hope to go two for three. They went 0 for three on those guys. They normally get a guy like that. So I do think Ryan Day has done some things where 
I think Brian Hartline is going to wind up calling plays for Ohio State this year. They're going to take, I think Ryan Day is going to take some things off his plate to allow him to be more of a culture coach and more of a head coach of the entire team. And I think Kirby Smart has sh- shown the way a little bit on some stuff like that. I don't think Ryan Day might have learned some stuff going up against, uh, against Georgia. But I do wonder sometimes, Shahan, about that. That if you, is there going to be a point where you pay the piper if you have a really good recruiting class, but year after year after year, one side of the ball is outpacing the other? My guess would be in 2025, Ohio State's still right there. But if they're not, it's going to be because the offense is surpassing the defense and the defense is not a championship level defense. Yeah, well, and and I would point to, uh, you know, conversions dating back to 2018, which would be Ryan Day's first full or actually took over in 2019, 2019 his first year. Yeah, But but let, let's go back to 2018 because that was last year's roster, right? Uh, the five stars that, that came through, Nicholas Petit-Frere, total hit, Teron Vincent, eh, Tyreek Johnson, eh. You know, so so you're talking about the offensive player hitting defensive players, both kind of not hitting five star potential. I think it's at least fair to say the next year, Zach Harrison kind of were waiting for him to, good, to do the good thing. player. Yeah. Good player good was player, never an all of not five star conversion, I think is fair to say. Uh, Garrett Wilson, total hit. Harry Miller, obviously he had his situation. Um, but, you know, so so I think that the offense player hit the defense player was fine. Uh, the next year, you have three five stars, all offensive. Jackson Smith and Jigba, Paris Johnson, both huge hits. Julian Fleming is a little bit less of a hit, probably. But, you know, two out of three is pretty dang good. The next year, I, I think, is where things get kind of interesting. So, obviously, you've got a bunch of offensive players. Kyle McCord hasn't played yet. Travion Henderson's a hit. Donovan Jackson's a hit. Emeka Ibuka's a hit. Uh, Quinny Ewers obviously ended up transferring. JT Tuomalau, I, I think, looks like a hit. He looks like he's going to convert that. Jack Sawyer hasn't so much. You know, he, he's he's still Flashes, young. It's, it's but not yeah. over. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, all this to say, you have this many kids coming through, and we just really haven't seen it on the defensive side in a few years. Now, again, this just take this is a very small sample size of just the five stars, obviously. But but when you look at sort of the hit rates of offensive players versus defensive players. I think that is an existential issue. I, I think that is a long-term thing that Ohio State needs to look at. And and I agree. I think that maybe Ryan Day taking a step back and not just being an offensive play caller will help with that. I, I do think that sometimes you can get so focused in on what you do that you don't do a good job everywhere else. And from a talent perspective, let's be clear, this is the number five class in the country. It's number three in terms of average recruit rating. Like, they're still top three you know there's still three teams like i keep talking about doing things different than everybody else but it will be interesting to see because you know and again that was a lincoln riley issue at oklahoma that's been a lincoln riley issue at uh, usc so far i think it's been a ryan day issue as well it's it's kind of interesting to kind of see with these offensive coaches can they be more than just being offensive minds first and foremost between 2014 and 2020, those seven NFL drafts, Ohio State had 13 first-round picks on the defensive side of the ball. Just defenders. 13 in seven years. 2023 will be the third straight year where they don't have a first-round pick on defense. So, And I think think first-round picks is a pretty good reflection of the NFL perceiving your five-star talentness coming out. Because it's not about, oh, because you could look and say, you know, Baron Browning was a third-round pick, but he's played really well. It's like, well, yeah, but that wasn't based on his college career. 
how the NFL perceived him. Jonathan Cooper has turned into a good NFL player for the Denver Broncos. He was a seventh-round pick. He was a five-star player at Ohio State. He was good at Ohio State, but coming out, the NFL saw him as a seventh-round pick. And then he's turned out to be better than that. Well, what does that mean? It means that the conversion from high school to the end of your college career didn't hit on every level because he was a five-star who turned into a seventh-rounder who's now good. So that's the thing. They, they do – it's not catastrophic, but it's something to keep your eye on. Again, I think Ohio State three years from now will be right where they are now. Oh, no question. No question. But this is something – and they're aware of it as much as anybody. This is something to keep an eye on. Let's do rapid fire for the next five. Number six is LSU. This is why Brian Kelly came. Is Brian Kelly going to do it? Do you believe that like this is going to be a hit? And by 2025, LSU is going to be a consistent national power. Yes, I absolutely do. I I think that when Brian Kelly took this job, his hope was, hey, man, I'm not a great recruiter. Because uh, I, I think that there are things that we've already seen uh, from the number 10 class, Notre Dame and Marcus Freeman, that show that there's more upside than what Brian Kelly showed. But LSU recruits itself. And we've seen that. And they're going to be right there. And, and by the way, this is probably the least talented team that Brian Kelly will ever have at LSU, and they won the SEC West. Number seven is Miami. This is interesting. Again, first year wasn't great. Mario Cristobal has been and is a great recruiter. He went back to Miami to restore the pride of the U. This could be the start of that. Or in three seasons, we could be looking at Miami just the way we are looking at Florida and Texas A&M and Auburn from three years ago. It's we don't know. But what's your instinct on this? And again, there's some NIL stuff where it feels like Miami dove in headfirst to NIL and good for them for getting good players to that school. Yeah, yeah. And to be clear, I have zero problem with that. Uh, I think what's interesting about Mario Cristobal is that his conversion rate at Oregon was pretty good. He did a pretty good job of converting top 100 type players and uh, and top 10 classes into performing like that and being those kinds of uh, players coming out. But it never really translated into on-field success. You know, like they they had great players and great teams and then kind of at times played below what they were. I think that that's kind of a separate issue. And obviously at Miami and playing in the ACC, the hope for Mario Cristobal is that you can become so talented that it doesn't matter uh, unless you're playing Clemson or Florida State. And I think that they're probably going to be in that position. I I think that they just have the ability under Cristobal to, to put themselves in a conversation that nobody else can really touch. But at the same time, I mean, Oregon never really, really, I think, hit their full potential under Mario Cristobal, uh, even when their players were playing at a high level. So it's going to be an interesting question, I think. Number eight is Oregon. So Dan Lanning, now entering year two, a good year one. We talked about Dante Moore a lot on the Apple podcast discussion about quarterbacks. Was an Oregon commit from Detroit, flipped to UCLA. A couple things at play there. Maybe Bo Nix staying at Oregon for an extra year. That's good for Oregon but they lose the quarterback recruit. They'll have to, they did get, get one. They'll have to go find another big time guy for next year. This seems encouraging to me for them to get a top 10 class. And again, you always thought Oregon with Nike with Phil Knight would be a school that should capitalize on NIL. 
I think maybe as good as Chip Kelly was at Oregon, I'm not so sure we've seen the best of what Oregon can be and that this modern college football world might be built for them. And I think in 2025, they're going to be there. No question. And, uh, you know, one thing that I will mention because the internet's annoying is look, Phil Knight and Nike is not sending the main NIL, right? Like that's, it's smaller donors who are, who are providing most of that stuff. Obviously Nike increases the visibility of Oregon, but I think the most important thing that came from this is the fact that Oregon and Miami as well, by the way, are not going to be part of the big two. And that did not dissuade recruits from picking them. People still view Oregon as a powerful brand where you can succeed. Uh, you know, one thing that I that I noted, because because uh, they got another commit today, they actually closed uh, both signing days really well. They, they added Roderick Pleasant today, who's a top 100 cornerback from California. They got four of the top nine players from California. And actually, I think the Pac-12 in general, we talked about Aiden Childs yesterday going to Oregon State. Uh, the Pac-12 did a really good job, relatively speaking, in California this year. And and I think that Oregon, of course, standing chief among them. So I, I think that this was a class that they had to have. I think they had to finish strong. You mentioned Dante Moore flipping to UCLA. They were able to get Austin Novosad from uh, from my Baylor Bears, unfortunately. But, uh, but you know, they, they, I think, put together a really strong class. And, and I like the balance that they have. You know, I, I think that you look, they've got a five-star receiver. They've got a really good edge. They've got a really good athlete. Like, they don't just line up one type of player. They did a really good job, I think, of, of balancing their class out. So I'm very excited about this class that they have coming in. And uh, and also, by the way, they have a top 12 transfer class in the country coming in as well. So people still want to play at Oregon, and people believe in that staff. Number nine is Tennessee. We talked about the quarterback they got. But again, they've been doing this. And then Josh Heupel and Hendon Hooker and that receiving core brought it all together this year. Does Tennessee feel real now? Do you think they'll be there in 2025? The big question that I have about Tennessee is how will their schedule look in 2025? You assume that they're still going to play Alabama every single year because that's kind of a protected rivalry. If they're able to just rotate Georgia, that they don't have to play them every single year, they're in a great position. They're in a really, really good position uh, in a 12-team playoff world. If they have to play both those teams every single year, that's tough, <laughs> you know? Uh, and and the new SEC is going to be really tough regardless. You're not going to get an easy schedule. But I think that Tennessee has kind of positioned itself in this divisional setup to be that number one competitor to Georgia in the SEC East. And uh, look, I, I have some questions about what the ceiling exactly is of a Josh Heupel offense when they go against the Georgias and the, you know, Alabama's year and you're out Ohio state, but there's no question in my mind that they can at least get to that point where that's put to the test. So I, I think that Tennessee is absolutely going to be in the playoff conversation uh, come 2025. And the last one, number 10 is Notre Dame. Number 11 is Clemson. Number 12 is USC, but you got to make the top 10 to make this version of the podcast. You mentioned Marcus Freeman, what he's been doing recruiting for Notre Dame. In the end, it feels like possibly the Brian Kelly Marcus Freeman transaction is going to wind up paying off for both those schools. Do you think that Marcus Freeman and Notre Dame will be able to build on this? Um, um, I think this 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 Sam Hartman. I, I I like this idea sometimes of the quarterback for a a new coach at a school that really sort of establishes this is what we're going to do. And quarterback recruiting is so important, but we talk about it. I think with Ohio State a lot, 
Ryan Day got Justin Fields as a transfer, and it was like that. That? See that? That, that, that? Now, he had had Dwayne Haskins when Ryan Day was the offensive coordinator, but to get Justin Fields to come there, not exactly maybe know what it's going to be, and then Justin Fields does it, and then it's like, oh, no, that. And then C.J. Stroud comes, and then De- Kyle McCord comes, and then Devin Brown, right? Quinn Ewers was here for a year. If Sam Hartman can lay some groundwork for Notre Dame, and then everything else Marcus Freeman is doing, does this feel real to you? Is Are we looking at Notre Dame in your mind as a regular, regular, maybe six times out of ten participant in the 12-team playoff? And we're specifically talking about 2025. No, I, I think that this is absolutely a program that has the ability to do it. I agree. Bring in Sam Hartman is something that could transform the program because when's the last time that Notre Dame had a quarterback like this? You know, I mean, we're Ron Paulus, Ron Paulus. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that's it. Uh, (laughs) I mean, but, but like, you're probably talking like the Brady Quinn, Jimmy Clausen days, maybe. And, and Sam Hartman again is the ACC's all time leading touchdown passer. Look, God bless the the people over at two, four, seven sports who are my colleagues. I don't understand how he's only a 0.94 in the ratings. This is the, the best, one of the best quarterbacks in the history of the ACC who started four years and been uber successful. And now he's going to Notre Dame to play with those players to play under that staff. I mean, this is this is a home run. This is to me the transition of the off season. Uh, is Sam Hartman going to Notre Dame? And then obviously that's not what we're talking about. But uh, you know, we're talking about the high school class. But you know, similar sort of deal. I think that you see a level of buy in to Notre Dame under Marcus Freeman. That's really impressive. Like like you said, only the number ten uh, high school class, but they're seventh in average recruit rating. They took a little bit of a smaller class, uh, a twenty four man class. This is an elite class. This is a really elite class. And uh, they got the kind of players that they had not been getting under Brian Kelly. And actually, you look forward a year to 2024 as well. They're number four right now, obviously headlined by Lloyd Carr's grandson, CJ Carr, at quarterback, a five-star player, or who somebody who will be a five-star player. So I, I think that you have to, again, feel really optimistic about what Marcus Freeman can bring. This does feel like a trade that does work for everybody because I do think that that Notre Dame needs somebody who is going to be just a little bit more aggressive than Brian Kelly was. And Brian Kelly isn't built like that. He came up through, you know, Grand Valley state and Cincinnati, right? Like he, he's a football coach. And I think that uh, he's going to be able to be a great football coach at LSU and Notre Dame needs somebody who's more going to sell the program. And Marcus Freeman is clearly that guy so far. And, and I think that that combined with the actual results on the field have to have you feeling really good about the future of Notre Dame. All right. That's our version of talking about recruiting because that's it's a playoff show. How does it convert? So I, I think we can dig in even more this off season and sort of that conversion idea of truly, maybe that would be a, it's a great investigation. You know, we take playoff teams and say, how were they built? I enjoy talking out what the next podcast is going to be on the podcast. It's it's great podcasting, great radio. But but if you said, what were the 10 most important things that happened to make Georgia the national champions this year? And then you dig into the hiring of Todd Munkin. You dig into the recruitment of Jalen Carter. You know, you dig into the whole situation with Stetson Bennett where he was there, then he left, then he came back, then they made that quarterback decision. All the things that would happen. 
And the, what were the what were the ten things that really made Michigan this level of program? And then you can find some things about what makes great teams, what makes playoff teams. Okay, we'll do that next. Well, not like next week. We'll do it in <laughs> June. But for now, we, we, we got a pre- long off season. We got a long off season to go. For now, we appreciate you guys listening. Again, if you want to try the Apple Podcast bonus episode each week, two ninety nine a month, less than a, like seventy five cents a podcast to get you that bonus episode every week. But thank you for joining us here on this free show once a week for Shahan Jeharaja. I'm Doug Lee Maurice, and that was the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. 